0: Christians in general, but specifically evangelicals like myself, too often we have impoverished ourselves and cut ourselves off not only from a fountain of sort of, you know, inspiration and a fountain of restoration, but a fountain of truth. I I believe that if we only read nonfiction, we are cutting ourselves off from sources of goodness, truth and beauty, and the reason we're doing it is not because we're in keeping with the history of the church, but because, again, we're Enlightenment thinkers without realizing
1: it. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast. Where Doctrine Matters and Theological Ideas Have Consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
2: Welcome to The Credo Podcast, Where Doctrine Matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. The world of fiction and the world of theology, well, they might as well be worlds apart. Rarely, if ever, do theologians write fiction, or even pay attention to the insights they might imbibe from a world make-believe. Well, personally, I think that must change. For not only does fiction communicate truth, but truth becomes incarnate through characters with flesh and blood, people not all that different from, from us. And through the art of the story, well, beauty itself is embodied. In this episode of create Credo Podcast, we move past the artificial divide to explore the innumerable ways fiction infuses our minds and hearts with stories of rebellion and redemption, stories that in some substantial way bring us closer to the master storyteller himself. How are we going to do that? Well, I have invited Luis Marcos to come on the podcast and talk to us about his own life in literature. He is professor of English in the School of Humanities at Houston Baptist University. He lectures on a variety of topics, including ancient Greek uh, classics, romantic, and 17th century poetry and prose, as well as mythology. He is, I must say, given all the books he's written related to C.S. Lewis, he is quite an authority on C.S. Lewis. Some of his books include From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read Pagan Classics, On the Shoulders of Hobbits, The Road to Virtue with Tolkien and Lewis, and another one I'll mention, Atheism on Trial, Refuting the Modern Arguments Against God. And he has a new book coming out called The Myth Made Fact. Lewis, thank you for coming on the Credo podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me. That was a great introduction. I'm ready to go.
2: Well, you know, one of the things I have so looked forward to having this conversation with you, I just have to admit that from the start, because I have noticed just in countless ways, whether it's your books or your lectures, your own writing, how many times you cross uh, the road into the theological world, and you do it uh, with ease as you connect the dots between Uh, uh, literature of all types, including Christian literature, and the Christian uh, Christian worldview, the Christian faith, even the Christian life. And so I thought, why don't we get together and actually talk? Uh, A theologian and an English professor, imagine that, (laughs) on the same (laughs) podcast even, uh, sitting down to talk with one another. And I thought, I don't think this is hardly done. At, At least I can't remember a time. So I've been looking forward uh, to our conversation uh, together. Let me start off this way and just ask you a question that I know is personal to your own life. I have seen uh, through your own writings how li- literature has really shaped uh, your thoughts, your mind. Uh, but I think our listener, our listeners will also learn that it has shaped your entire life. Now, now why is it that something like literature, reading through the great minds and the classics of lit- literature, why has that had such a huge influence uh, on your entire career?
0: Well, Matthew, let, let me start by just telling a quick story that will sort of explain the importance of this conversation we're having and all of the podcasts that you're doing, and what you're doing at Credo. And this is a true story, I'm not going to tell you the person's name, but many years ago, There was a radio evangelist, a good man of God, an elderly man, and he was, you know, an evangelist, led a lot of people to Christ, but on the radio program, he was telling people, don't read C.S. Lewis. Well, a friend of mine knew that I was going to be in the town where this guy lives, and so he got a a, a little conversation. We got together, we sat down, we talked. Now, as I expected, Matthew, the man had never actually read anything by C.S. Lewis, he read something on the internet that somebody wrote. <laughs> that didn't surprise me. Yes. What surprised me and sort of just made me say, okay, this is my, vision, my mission and vision from now on. I said to the man, sir, what have you read by C.S. Lewis? Have you read the Chronicles of Narnia? And his response was amazing. And again, this is a man of God. He said, ever since I became a believer 40 years ago, I have not read a single work of fiction now he meant no fiction he didn't even read the Left Behind series which actually is probably a good thing but he had read <laughs> no fiction now there, here's the point about this I, you know now I, the guy was a lot older than me so I didn't want to sound like a young whippersnapper I could have told him you know the parables of Jesus are fictional they're short stories yeah. but that wasn't the point I came away understanding something you know it's like one of those you know, light bulb things if you ask this man why he didn't read fiction he would tell you, because I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. But the real reason he doesn't read fiction, the reason he doesn't know, is that he's a modernist and doesn't understand it. I'm an evangelical. And evangelicals you know, have fought against a lot of these modern Enlightenment notions, but there's one that we've completely absorbed without knowing it. And that's this idea of the divide. You talked about it in your introduction, that on one side is fact and the other side is fiction. Science versus religion, reason versus imagination, or reason versus emotion, logic versus intuition, history versus myth, and there's absolutely nothing in between. And because we've bought into this myth, I really think, and again, Christians in general, but specifically evangelicals like myself, too often we have impoverished ourselves and cut ourselves off not only from a fountain of sort of you know inspiration and a fountain of restoration, but a fountain of truth. I mean, the Bible, I know it's close to a third of the Bible is poetry, right? All the wisdom literature, Job, uh, Proverbs, uh, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, all of those are written in poetry. I'm sorry, most of the prophecies are written in, uh, in in poetry, and mm-hmm. most of the teachings of Jesus are written in the form of Hebrew poetry we call parallelism. So for me, we, we have got to—I I believe that if we only read nonfiction, we are cutting ourselves off from sources of goodness, truth and beauty, and the reason we're doing it is not because we're in keeping with the history of the Church, but because, again, we're Enlightenment thinkers without realizing it. Have you encountered anything like that,
2: Matthew? I think you're exactly right. Uh, When we create this uh, dichotomy, this separation, uh, whether it's uh, between reason and faith or fact and fiction... Uh, we end up, like you said, we end up cutting ourselves off from the fountain of truth. And sometimes, uh, like you said, we do it with maybe uh, even Christian-looking motives, but in reality, we're we're hurting ourselves. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to have this this conversation, was, you know, you're coming at this issue uh, from the world of literature. I'm coming at it uh, in my world of theology, but we're experiencing the same uh, Enlightenment modernist uh, assumption. And so we're I w- having this conversation is a way for us to kind of meet at the fence and figure out why, why is this happening and how can we move past it? You know, maybe I can follow up with a, another question. You know, as you describe your own journey, uh, you talk about how uh, the way you, you found your this this fountain of truth, as you've called it, is by coming into the conversation, coming into a dialogue, if we can call it that, with the great writers of the past. And there are so many, of course, but you even use words like ministry to describe how these ancient and med- medieval writers and their literature has played a role in shaping your your, your conscience and even the world as you interact with it. Now, you, you've shared that that story a minute ago, but maybe you could just elaborate a little bit and talk about how, how has your own journey, as you look back, how has your own journey dialoguing with these great thinkers uh, changed your life and the way that you interact with the world?
0: It really has. I remember uh, Machiavelli, who's not always as bad as we think. He also wrote some other things. and was a Christian thinker, ultimately. Uh, I, I, in, a, in a letter that we have, a Machiavelli a famous letter, he talks about his day, you know, what he does day to day. And he talks about in the evening, he takes off his dirty work clothes, he puts on his fancy clothes, and he sits down to dinner and has this wonderful conversation. And as you're reading you're, who exactly is he talking to? and we suddenly realize he's not having a dinner with aristocrats he's in his library reading homer and virgil and dante and is in actual dialogue with them hmm. and to me that is the essence of, of 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 the liberal arts it's the essence of being an english professor like myself but any kind of humanities professor that i feel invited into this great ongoing dialogue or discussion or conversation that's been going on ever since Homer put together the and the Odyssey and Moses wrote, the five books. And since then, there's been this ongoing dialogue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in in, in Christian theology, Matthew, we make a distinction between general revelation and special revelation. Now, it's true that the special, direct revelation, that only comes to us through the Bible, through the prophet, through Christ himself. But God also speaks through general revelation. He speaks through the creation. He speaks through our conscience. He speaks through our reason. speaks through our imagination. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it used to bother me a lot when, when I was a younger Christian thinking, are you telling me that God until the coming of Christ, are you telling me that God spoke only to the Jews and ignored 99% of the human population? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And the answer is no, only to the Jews did he speak directly, but he poured out self revelation through what's called general revelation, speaking and inspiring. Now, again, you know, People like Homer and Virgil and Plato and Aristotle, they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have direct revelation. And so from a Christian point of view, there are errors there. But that doesn't mean all is error. <laughs> By dialoguing with them, I am learning what it means to be a human being. Mm-hmm. I am learning how to ask questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? They guide me in asking, what is the nature of the good? Of the true, of the beautiful, they get me to ask questions like, "What is the nature of the good man, the good state, the good life?" These are questions that are asked, you know, particularly by the Greco-Roman pre-Christian Greco-Roman writers, and these are important questions. They're questions about what it means to be human, and they—I mean, this may sound kind of crazy, but I'm one of these people who often am drawn closer to God by reading, let's say, mythology than by reading a Christian devotional book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because when I read mythology, I am reminded that, again, we are all made in God's image, and we all—you know, what what, what does Paul say at the Areopagus? And of one man, God created all the races of men. He set their time and their nations so that they might reach after him and grope after him, though— we are not far from him, for in him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting a pagan poet that said that that, that, that God has put, well, that famous phrase from Ecclesiastes, God has written eternity in the hearts of men, or as Pascal said, we have a God-shaped vacuum within us. We have that yearning and desire, and that desire alone is not going to save us. We need God's grace, his prevenient grace even, to open us to that full saving knowledge. But still, the desire is real, and the greatest writers, historians, the poets, philosophers, dramatists, uh, musicians, artists—even they are responding to that yearning that was put in each of us. And by reading their work, and why do we read their work? This is the work that has shown itself to have enduring value, to 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 touch on issues that transcend any given culture, or time period, or, or, or anything. That They rise up. They, they are of perennial value. That's why we keep reading a Shakespeare or a Milton or a Chaucer, because as, as someone said of Shakespeare, he's not for an age, but for all time. And why? <laughs> why, Matthew, would we want to cut ourselves off from these fountains? Why can't we be like um, uh, uh, Moses, who learned everything in the Egyptians, or be like Daniel, who learned from the Babylonians first and then the Persians, mm-hmm. uh, and was made wiser and, and a better tool, ultimately, to be used by the one true God.
2: You know, one individual you mentioned was Plato, and this this story won't surprise you. I know that you are uh, such an expert on C.S. Lewis. But I'm reminded of uh, Lewis's own conversion uh, when uh-huh. he—this this transition between atheism and Christianity in his own life. Uh, you may remember it's—he's, uh, you know, at Oxford, and uh, some, he, he sees something. Well, actually, he hears something that has an influence on him, that, that moves him, or at least starts to, to get him thinking— uh, in, in a direction towards Christianity in a way from, say, naturalism. Uh, right. w- well, what, what is this? Well, he has this uh, encounter with these uh, students, I think they were, who, who they're discussing Plato, they're, right. they're talking about Plato's ideas. Now, that wasn't new to C.S. Lewis, but right. it's the way that they were doing it. They were, they were talking about Plato and his ideas as if, well, as if they, they mattered. Now, yes, they <laughs> why why did that the the way that they were uh, not just talking about Plato's ideas, but the way that they were doing it? Why did that have such an effect on someone who who at the time, someone like Lewis, who who was an atheist or a naturalist?
0: Because he was playing with knowledge, mental masturbation, if you want to call it that. He was bright and all of that, but he wasn't. Engaging in a real dialogue. I, I, let me let me tell you because one of the things that Lewis taught me. I've been a professor now at HBU. I'm in my thirtieth year now. It's gone by fast. And if there's one change that I could make to academia, whether secular or Christian, if there's one change I can make to academia that would make it a much much better place, it would be to rid academia of what Screwtape and the Screwtape Letters calls the historical point of view. Now, this is worth saying a little. If you want to look it up, it's in letter number 27. Screwtape Letters is a senior devil named Screwtape writing to his nephew Wormwood, teaching him how to tempt people. And it's got a lot of satire, but it's very pointed satire and very convicting. And basically what he tells Wormwood, his nephew, is, you know... If these humans really read things like Aristotle and Plato and Boethius and Augustine, they would see through most of our temptations with ease. But don't worry. This very rarely happens in the world we've created. (laughs) But there still is a danger, he tells Wormwood. There is a group of people who devote their life to reading that. He means academics and professors and whatnot. They... They read all of this stuff, but we've done something, Screwtape says, to make them the last people in the world to be able to get anything out of their reading, mm. and that is by inculcating the historical point of view. Here's what it means. I went to a secular university, University of Michigan, excellent school, but like most universities, if we had a class on St. Dante, we would ask all sorts of questions about Dante. Uh, You know, when did he live? When did he write this? What were his influences? Who did he influence? All these questions we would ask, interesting questions. But there's one question, Matthew, that was never asked. Is what Dante wrote true? True. That was never—it would be considered unutterably naive, as if we could actually learn anything from this dead white male heterosexual Catholic on top of that, right? But here's the problem, Matthew. Until you ask that question, is what Plato wrote true, it will never change your belief, and it will never change your behavior. You're just playing with knowledge. You're holding it at arm's length. And in the world we're in now, Matthew, not only do we hold these people at arm's length, we look down on them. We feel superior to them. We're enlightened and all of that. And so, again, that's what Lewis was like before then, the historical point of view. But he suddenly realized that, yes, what Plato wrote mattered, and I've got to take it seriously. I may in the end decide Plato's wrong, but I can't just play with it. Like it's a toy. this is this is real knowledge. Plato's making real claims about, again, truth, goodness, and beauty. And again, in my own life, it's in the interaction with that. That doesn't mean I agree with everything everybody says. I certainly don't agree when I read people like Freud or Marx or Nietzsche or Darwin, okay? Um, but I'm going to learn something from all of them. Uh, my my life metaphor for for how the great books have shaped me and hone me into a Christian, into just a man, into a, a, a professor or a writer, my image that I like to use is the image of the lathe, right? So I see the great books that I'm reading as a lathe, and I see my head, my brain, if you will, as the piece of wood. And as I read and dialogue with Plato or Dante, whoever it is, I, my brain is being shaped against it, like a piece of wood is shaped against a lathe.
2: Right. You know your mention of the true, uh, the the good, the true, and the beautiful. I I just can't let that go. Uh, I have to to ask you more about it because uh, as you use that uh, that metaphor about you know how our minds and our hearts are are shaped uh, in different ways by these authors, and, and that doesn't and like you said that doesn't just mean the ones we agree with, but the ones we disagree with. Uh, As we have that dialogue and that conversation, uh, we see this connection, if we take truth seriously at least, we see this connection between humanism and orthodoxy. Uh, At one point you have said, uh, I remember you saying at one point that uh, you enter into this humanist port of, of the world's literature, of, of the great thinkers of the past, and as you enter into this port, something uh, unexpected can happen. You actually are led to, rather than away from, Christian orthodoxy. How is that possible?
0: I know, I mean, the simple answer is because, like the cliche, but it's a true cliche, says all truth is God's truth. Mm-hmm. Anything that, you know, it's you know, some people, there was a famous writer, uh, H. Richard Niebuhr. He is the brother of Reinhold Niebuhr, but he was actually more orthodox than his brother. He wrote a book called Christ and Culture. How do we how do we put them together? How do we put together Christianity and humanism or Christianity in the secular world or even the pagan world? And he said, for some people, uh, they, 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 there's no, they, they call that Christ against culture. The Christian has to cut himself off from culture, It'd be like the Amish or something, or like many of the Jews in the Old Testament, uh, be separate from the unbeliever. Then there's the sort of theological liberals, the Christ of culture. Well, we'll just we'll just take everything the culture says and we'll give it a Christian name, but we're really absorbing the culture. But there's other ways, and one of the ones he calls call one of the ones he calls Christ over culture, and that is that when you get that culture, and a lot of that's coming from the great books, when you get to the highest and best and truest part of it, you can take that and sort of take it up into Christianity. Rather than building a wall, it can be a staircase and you can lead it up. Now, thankfully, we have the Bible as our touchstone so we can measure these truths. We have our creeds, right? We can measure the truth. But again, we've, we've got to get out of this sort of all or nothing, that, that everything outside of Christianity is 100% error, 100% lie, 100% darkness, 100% deception. It's just, that's just not the way it works. That's like these people that try to convince themselves that non-Christians can't do anything good. No, they can do very good and virtuous things. Now, those virtuous acts are not salvific. We're not going to earn their salvation But, you know, I'm sorry, that's just real life, okay? Regular people, even the classic pagans, were were capable of great works of virtue and even self-sacrifice because we're made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And so there is much that we can learn and be challenged by. Here's just a good example I was sharing with my students. As Christians, we should be challenged by these Muslims who memorize large portions of the Quran. Now, we used to do that, maybe our grandparents, but we're less and less willing to put in the work to really feed on the word and memorize it, right? And the way Muslims pray five times a day and stuff like that, we're lucky if we do one a day, right? (laughs) So we can learn and be challenged uh, by these works that, again, they call us to a, a higher engagement Right I mean, that the phrase that Jesus uses and it's in what we call the high priestly prayer, high priestly prayer. John chapter 17 at the end of the upper room discourse. You know, He calls us not to be in the world, but not to be of the world. Right? He's not taking us out of the world. He's put us in the world, but he also wants us not to be of it. Uh, and so, uh, again, we, 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 we work between the two. I, I call myself, in many of my books, a humanist Christian. Right and, and a lot of people think I should say Christian humanist because they don't really understand grammar, right? We have this idea that the first word is the more important word, but the more important word is the noun, okay? Mm-hmm. The less important word is the adjective, right? So I am a Christian humanist in the, I'm sorry, I'm a humanist Christian in the same way I'm a Greek American. Okay. I was born in America. That is who I am. I am an American. But if you ask me what kind of American are you, I would say, well, I'm a Greek American. I carry with me this heritage. All four of my grandparents were born in Greece, emigrated to America about 1930. And so my, my primary allegiance and identity as an American is deepened and enrichen, enriched by all of, you know, the, the family rituals, the customs, all that stuff. If you've seen my big factory wedding, all of that sort of stuff uh, enriches me as an American. Well, in the same way, if you ask me, who am I? I'm going to say I'm a Christian. Right? That, that is who I am. Those are my verities but what kind of a Christian I'm a humanist Christian who believes that the things that man creates are worth preserving, particularly the birthplace of humanism, ancient Athens, and then ancient Rome. These things are worth studying. And again, wrestling with, as we said, and conversing with, and that by conversing with them, we will be better citizens, right? Again, uh, not necessarily better Christians, though I think we will be if we use it properly. We will be fuller and richer people able able to give more of ourselves to God. I mean, you know, when people say, well, the Bible is the only book you need. Well, that's true, but also nobody needs a college education. Heck, I don't know if you need a high school education. None of my grandparents had a high school education. They all did quite well, led better lives than a lot of people I see today. I mean. There's very few things that we need, okay. but there are a lot of things that are good for us. Mm -hmm. There are opportunities that we can hold on to, and the more we make use of those opportunities, the more they will shape and expand and challenge us. Right? I would, be, I would be a different person, and I think a lesser Christian if I never read The Iliad, and the Odyssey or the Greek tragedies of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, or the or the uh, philosophy of Plato and Aristotle, or even the historical works of Herodotus and Thucydides. All of these things go to shape a consciousness, to, to shape a character of a person. And you know, the, the fuller person we are, the more we can offer up. That fullness to Christ to be used in the fullest way. Again, Moses and Daniel were better vessels of the Lord because of their knowledge of the wisdom of the Egyptians and the Persians and the Babylonians.
2: Now, you've mentioned uh, a couple of these great works already Uh, the Odyssey, the Iliad, you mentioned Plato or Dante. Maybe we could just jump around for a second and uh, let me just throw out. Uh, a name or or a title, and you let let's have you just respond. Uh, You're give me your first reaction uh, to this author or to this book, and uh, tell our listeners uh, based on everything you just said about how much they can benefit. Maybe just pick out one way that they, uh, given your own experience, they can benefit. Uh, okay, so here we go. Uh, let's start with Plato uh, and. For our listeners, Plato uh, is someone that, well, let's just be honest, many Christians seem to to be very nervous about. Uh, they they don't want Plato uh, to influence Christianity at all. That makes them very nervous. But uh, I'm guessing you think Plato actually has an important role to play.
0: You know, I tell you, that this modern attack on Plato, and, and some of it's coming from people that would consider themselves conservatives or orthodox or neo-orthodox. It reminds me of what liberal theologians have been doing for the last hundred years. Anything they don't like about Christianity, they blame it on St. Paul. It's just a, <laughs> it's just a classic you know, move. Well, those of us that are conservative are not going to pull that move because we're supposed to believe in the full authority of Scripture. So if there's something we don't like, let's blame it on Plato. Okay and yet yeah, they weren't they weren't uh, you know influenced by Plato but more for the good than for the bad yeah. right and th- th- the church fathers knew what the major weakness of Plato was and that was too low of a view of the body that the soul needs to escape the body and and move on they understood that, that- that's why they rejected gnosticism it was the gnostics who were too platonic okay but Plato understood within the proper... Co- again, Plato helps us to understand that, again, it's so counterintuitive, but it's true that heaven and God are more real than our world. Now, our world is not, you know, just uh, empty. Sometimes Plato went a little too far as if the world was illusion, though that that's not necessarily the right way to read him. This world is real, but as C.S. Lewis himself said, "In the last battle, it's not that our world is an illusion, but compared to the thundering reality of heaven, it is like living in the shadowlands." Okay, so we are real. Our body is real. It's good, but Plato helped, to, and not just us, but me. Okay, and, and 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 growing up as a very young kid, right, and and and, and uh, it helped me to turn my eyes away from that, which is always changing and towards that, which is real and true and good and unchanging. And, you know, what, one of the things I can pride myself on just kind of compared to other people that I grew up with is how little influenced I am by advertising. I just, it doesn't really bother me. And part of the reason was because play the kid, okay, that you need to move away from you know, the shadows on the cave wall. People know about the allegory of the cave and to come out of the cave and see that which endures and that which is true and real. Another thing that, that Plato helped me with is not getting caught up with addiction. I mean, I, I, as a kid, I didn't even drink coffee. I, didn't, I don't think coffee's evil. Okay, but, but as a good young Platonist, Plato taught me that maturity means being free. Not being enslaved to things, and I thought it 's kind of funny, and maybe maybe I was a, a, a little nutty kid, but I remember listening to adults saying i can 't you know i, I can 't begin my day without a cup of coffee and I remember when I listened to that as a young Platonist thinking that 's not what an adult is. I thought an adult was free. What do you mean you can't do something without a cup of coffee? I thought, you know, and again, and it wasn't so much Christianity. It's just Plato in my head saying, wait a minute. Why, why are you being trapped and tied to shadows and stuff like that? The, the whole life of philosophy is a life of freedom, of moving away closer. And it was Plato who talks about the three transcendentals as the good, the true, and the beautiful. And that was picked up by the medieval Christians. Uh, whole hog. I mean, maybe he was right now here's the difference, and here's why why Plato prepared me for the fuller truth. Plato was the one who actually coined the idea of the beatific vision, the blessed vision that we're moving towards, that Thomas Aquinas talks about all the time. But the difference is Plato's final, the end point of Plato's philosophical journey, if you will, is a meditation on the forms, the essence of things. But ultimately for Plato, those forms are not really personal, they're more abstract. But in Christianity, we are on a very similar journey as the Platonic philosopher. But at the end of our journey, Matthew, doesn't wait in personal forms, but a personal, a super personal triune God mm. who is goodness, truth, and beauty. And Arist- Augustine got it right. He knew that Plato was right in his basic orientation of the forms, but what he did is he took those forms and he put them in the mind of God. And that's where they are. Because that's the ultimate source of goodness, truth, beauty, justice, joy, love, all of these things with capital letters, right? The problem with Nietzsche is that he destroyed all capital letters. He said, no, nah, there are no capital letters. There's just, there's just the world. There's just the, 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 the cloud, the cave and whatnot. So mm. Plato not only taught me things, he inspired me to live a life of, of growth, a of growth in maturity that's gonna take me closer to goodness, truth, and beauty, and by so doing, greater freedom. Now, I don't mean that crazy individualism of an American, I can do whatever the heck I, I darn well please. That's not what I mean by freedom. I mean freedom from all the things that would prevent us from maturing into the people God created us to be. So that's very much a young Platonist, as as Lewis was. And you know, at the end of the last battle, uh uh Diggory Kirk, Professor Kirk says, It's all in Plato, it's all in Plato. What
2: do they teach them these days, right? It's wonderful. <laughs> oh. Now listen, now listen here, Lewis. Uh surely, surely, okay. Maybe you've uh persuaded some of our listeners that that Plato is uh worth reading and Especially with your mention of augustine and but uh surely you would not have uh, have us read someone like say Dante and uh, you know he wrote uh, on things like the inferno or purgatory uh is is that what you would uh is that what you would you, recommend
0: you, you, you have to and then and you, okay so it's <laughs> fiction okay but what okay well first of all Plato, uh, Dante was such a great poet that you really think he literally went on this journey? I mean, do you know that it, the Inferno is so concrete and real and, and visceral that every year in, in some places uh, in, 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 uh, in the Muslim world that are really, really uh, fundamentalist, they burn Dante in effigy every year because mm. he put Muhammad in hell. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they take it so seriously, it's like, like, and they attack him. But okay, look, even, even if you're not into the fanciful part, of the levels of hell, from Dante, you are going to learn something about the nature of sin and what sin does to us, how it robs us of our humanity, how it traps us in in a a, a almost what Freud would call a rep- repetition compulsion. You know, you you have to keep doing the same thing, kind of OCD, on and on. They're caught. They, 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 you know, a, a lot of people read Dante, and at first they think, "Oh, this is." This is adolescent. This is just punishment to fit the crime, like those you know, nasty slasher movies where they come up with really cool ways of killing people. That's not, that's not what it's I mean, it is justice to fit the crime. I mean, God is just, okay? But it's more than that. There's a deeper psychological level that taught me so much that it's not just punishment to fit the crime, but that the sin... Produces its own punishment. The punishment is itself the sin going on forever and ever and ever, like an itch you keep scratching and scratching until you scratch all your skin off, which is what it's like in the inferno. So, so Dante is. And, and here's another one. Okay, I, I, I'm a Baptist evangelical. I, I wouldn't say that I believe in purgatory. I don't see the biblical basis for it. But when I read Dante's Purgatorio, it teaches me of the need not only for salvation, but for sanctification. That, in in, in a very real sense, the people in Dante's Purgatory want to be there because they want to be able to remove every desire they have for sin so that when they come in God's presence, they can bask most completely and fully in his love. It would be like if I was going on a trip to uh, Rome, let's say. Right? Well, if I'm smart, I'm going to spend the three months leading up to that trip, studying about Rome and studying history and studying architecture. Why? Because if I do that, when I get to Rome, my experience is going to be 100% fuller and richer. So again, you don't have to believe literally in purgatory to understand the need for us to to purge, not just the sin, but the, the desire for the sin of so so again, like I said, Dante is a Catholic work, but you know you can be a you know a Baptist, whatever, Presbyterian, and learn a great deal from him and be strengthened spiritually.
2: Now let's skip ahead to Romanticism, and what would you say about someone like Wordsworth and uh, his work, Prelude?
0: Wow! Now, I actually my dissertation, which was uh, how long ago did I do my dissertation? Thirty years ago. Um, my dissertation was William Wordsworth and the Powers of the Imagination, uh, and he wrote a book called The Prelude. Now, The Prelude is an autobiography, but it's a poem. It's it's written in the same kind of meter. As Paradise Lost. It's what's called iambic pentameter. Da dum, da dum, da dum, da dum, da dum. Or if you've read a Shakespeare play, most of Shakespeare's soliloquies, like To Be or Not To Be, are written in this form. So it doesn't rhyme, but it has a very set meter. And the prelude is subtitled The Growth of a Poet's Mind. And in the prelude, Wordsworth is explaining to us, in a way, how he became a poet. All the things that built him up, and a lot of it is about his intercourse with nature and how that shaped his brain. And as you know, Matthew, I've written a book, it's not published yet, it's unpublished, but I've written, actually, a three-part autobiography called My Life in Literature. And it's kind of doing what we're doing here. It starts with Homer, it goes all the way to the modern period, and as I go through all of these works chronologically that have meant so much to me, you know, first as a student, and then as a professor, uh, I am tracing how those things shape me as a person, as a man, as a uh, Christian, and also as an English professor. So how did it help me to become who I am, my vocation, the way I think about life? Right? I mean, again, Plato helped me, and, and Wordsworth did, because Wordsworth is, is it's, it's about memory, and it's about the Impact that memory has us, and and how our early experiences imprint themselves upon us, and they imprint themselves upon us very, very deeply. And sometimes, in moments of despair, we can call back those moments. Wordsworth uh, calls them spots of time. Which, if you think about it for a moment, is an oxymoron—a spot of time. Right, spot is spatial and time is temporal. So it's a strange crossing of space and time, a spot of time. Deep inside, almost like a like a uh, like a seed or something deep inside of us waiting to be germinated. Uh, and I mean, I'm one of those people. I don't know about you, Matthew, but I'm one of those people that has always been very nostalgic. I mean, I think when I was five, I was probably nostalgic for the womb. Okay, and <laughs> if, you, if you don't know, the word nostalgia is a Greek word because, as we learned from my big fat Greek wedding every word is greek right so nostos that means homecoming and algia means pain uh, so there you go right uh, so nostalgia means homecoming pain it, which which means it it's it's a bitter sweet kind of emotion and yet it shapes us. And that's why, you know, for me and for someone like Wordsworth, one of the scariest diseases is Alzheimer's, right? Do we, do we lose who we are if we lose our memories? I don't think we are because, you know, God's spirit is very, very deep within us. Uh, but still, uh, from Wordsworth, I, I learned about, again, how a consciousness is formed. And it's interesting because... Even as Wordsworth is very much a nature poet in some ways, one of the things he learned is how there is something in us that is greater than nature, ultimately the soul. And Wordsworth, he lived until the age of 80. He did mature into a believing Christian, uh, as did Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Now, Byron Shelley, Keith, they all died too young. Maybe they wouldn't become Christians, but they all died too young. Uh, But Wordsworth and Coleridge both struggled with these things, and came closer and closer. And actually Coleridge wrote a difficult book, but one of my favorite books is it's a prose book called Biographia Literari, which of course means literary biography. And it is his autobiography, but an autobiography through books in that sense, very much like the Confessions of St. Augustine, right? Or, or if anybody's ever read Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis, it's an academic spiritual autobiography, or testimony really, I mean, you can call it a testimony, um, of, of how. But again, you know, if you're a more bookish person like me, a lot of our journeys are taken through books for some people it's nature or other things like that. But it's it's a matter of tracing that. And, you know, I tell you, Matthew, I really encourage people, my students and all, to give your testimony. If you're a Christian, especially if you're, if you're someone who didn't become a believer until, say, your 20s, it is so important for you to write your testimony, or at least put it together and give it. Why? Because when you start putting together your testimony, you're gonna discover something wonderful. You're gonna discover that God was working in your life long before you knew him or were even seeking after him. But we only learn that by hindsight. We have to turn around. We become two consciousnesses, to to use a phrase from Wordsworth. The, 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 The present man looking back and suddenly seeing things that the young person who was experiencing it couldn't see. And suddenly, we get a sort of providential history of ourselves. <laughs> uh, and so that, now, but let's be very careful, Matthew, because one of the diseases of our age is what might be called excessive introspection, where we keep going in and in and in and in, and, in, and that becomes unhealthy. And it's unhealthy because even Christian counselors today often do leads you on a kind of introspection that's done not so you can truly understand yourself and let the holy spirit search you but so that you can discover exactly what your parents did wrong to blame for everything in your life that you don't like okay that's not what wordsworth is about that's not what you know uh, david saying search me o lord and know my anxious thoughts that's not what it's that's not what plato meant when he said know thyself and socrates um, so somebody like wordsworth again is teaching us a method of self-examination that is not going to cause uh, envy, bitterness, resentment, and blame, and and self-justification, but it's going to bring about humility, awe, wonder, and gratitude. And I think that's what the greatest poetry does, mm-hmm. and a lot of romantic poetry. Even even somebody like like Shelley, who was kind of a famous atheist. He's still yearning after goodness, truth, and beauty. I I, I wish he'd lived longer. He might have become a Christian because he was so enamored of beauty. You know, (laughs) this is going to sound funny, but Shelley, Percy B. Shelley, uh, may be the only man in history who really believed in free love. See, a lot of guys in the 60s and 70s said they believed in free love so they could sleep around with a lot of women. Now, Shelley did sleep around with a lot of women. But I actually believe that he was a real Platonist who was seeking after ideal beauty, but it kept moving from Jane to Mary to Joe. I'm <laughs> saying <laughs> I really don't think it was just a simple justification for him as it probably was for Byron. I think Shelley was a young Platonist
2: wanting beauty. You've given us so much to think about. Let me just mention one more as we close here. T.S. Eliot's uh, in, the, in the modern world. So let's move from romanticism to the modern world. T.S. Eliot.
0: You know what's really interesting about Eliot? He has two different fan bases that can't understand each other. What I mean by that, you have a lot of the sort of you know, uh, cynical, skeptic people who love that you know, old, the, the early Eliot, like Love Song of Jail for Rock" and The Wasteland and The Hollow Man. You know, they, they, they like this despairing modernist guy, but they simply can't understand the Eliot who became a Christian and wrote things like The Journey of the Magi and The, the Four Quartets and Ash Wednesday. And then you've got a lot of Christians who love that later work, but are, what's all this despairing stuff? But no, if you're going to understand Eliot and if you're going to understand the modern world, you need to understand the full journey that he went on. It was out of that despair, right? That out of that the emptiness and the hollowness of the modern world, and the modern city in particular, that Eliot was able to move to a higher level of understanding. He he was able to see the problem and find the solution. And what I like about Eliot, particularly as a, you know, as an English professor, is that in eliot you find the perfect fusion of a romantic lyric in other words a, a romantic crisis poem where the first person you know a poet is struggling with things and trying to come to grip with them it's very much an internal exploration right but his work is also like a dramatic monologue the the, the king of the dramatic monologue was Robert Browning, and although Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote several good ones as well. And, and when I write a dramatic monologue, <clears throat> I am taking a character who's not me, Ulysses or somebody like that, and, and, and almost, almost what Shakespeare does with his soliloquies, right? Uh, I'm going to get into the mind of another person. Well, in a work like The Love Song of J.F. or Prufrock or Journey of the Magi, Eliot has perfectly fused the two. He is Prufrock and he isn't. He is the Magi, and he isn't. But by doing that, he's able to step back and get enough objectivity to also analyze himself and at the same time analyze his age. And so he's able to explore without falling into a kind of solipsism where you're kind of caught up in yourself, where, where poetry becomes nothing more than self-expression, and it gets cut off from the rest of the world. So Eliot, I, I gotta tell you that, Eliot shares something in common with C.S. Lewis, and that is, academics like myself, we love Eliot Lewis, because it's like, hey, here's a great, great poet, a great writer, a great critic, and he was a Christian! It's like okay, we can be, you know, because we, we've been, we we Christians have been so browbeaten the last couple hundred years to think that no, no, the the academy has no place for religion. Christianity is only about faith and feeling and whatnot. And, and the university, you know, the real smart people are the ones who've moved beyond the needs the, the, the need for that crutch called God, right? Uh, the people that uh, Richard Dawkins wanted to call the brights, okay? And so, in the same way that Richard Dawkins said that Darwin allowed me to be, you know, a, a, a intellectually fulfilled atheist. <laughs> In the same way, we could say people like Lewis and Eliot have helped the whole gener- several generations of Christian academics feel like they could be, you know, intellectually fulfilled Christians. <laughs> so they played a very interesting role. And, Well, of course, what's wonderful about Eliot, he's a great poet and a great critic at the same time.
2: We've been talking to Luis Marcos. If you've never read any of of his books, well, as you can tell from this podcast, you are in for a ride and an adventure. Uh, I would encourage our listeners to pick up one of uh, Marcos's books, whether it's From Achilles to Christ, or perhaps uh, giving what he just said about uh, C.S. Lewis and others, uh, his book, Atheism on Trial. Uh, one of the things that I just have so enjoyed about this conversation is uh, that, that last part where he mentions what it means to be intellectually, intellectually fulfilled as a Christian. Uh, if you are listening to this and you've never read, say, a T.S. Eliot or perhaps Plato or, or perhaps it's someone like Wordsworth uh, well, I think that uh, Lewis Marcos would say, "Well, what are you waiting for?" Because what are you waiting for? <laughs> what
0: are you waiting for? Wait, wait, Be- uh, I'll, I'll leave you with the final challenge. Like, if you go to Amazon.com and type in my name, Lewis Marcos—that's with a K, M-A-R-K-O-S—you'll see on my books there on my author page. But here's something to end with: When Lewis was a college student and, and a young professor, he was an atheist. And then something started to happen the book started to turn against him. Lewis noticed to his shock and horror that all of the writers he thought were the most rich, the most human, the most filled with joy. People like uh, Dante and and Milton and John Donne and George Herbert and and, and, and Samuel Johnson and G.K. Chesterton and Spencer and Sidney. They all had this strange thing in common. They were Christians. What was going on? He loved their work, except their Christianity. But... The people that he agreed with in his sort of atheism days, people like uh, Edward Gibbon or John Stuart Mill or or Voltaire or D.H. Lawrence or H.G. Wells or George Bernard Shaw, the people that he agreed with philosophically, there was something missing in them. I mean, they had a kind of brilliance, but there was a a lack of joy and truth and beauty. There was a, a hollowness there. And that's why Lewis said, and we'll end with this phrase, a young atheist A young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. Okay, Matthew, it's full of traps out there. Go out there and enter into the dialogue, and you'll enjoy yourself.
2: Well, I don't think I could end it better than that. Lewis, thank you so much for joining us on the Credo Podcast. I do hope you'll come back again, and uh, perhaps next time we can even explore some of the other great thinkers that have have influenced your life and the lives of so many others.
1: Would love
0: to do it, Matthew. Thanks for having me on.
1: Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine, with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.